Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. With one of the best savings rates in America, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions. Even easier than choosing Slash to be in your band. Next up for lead guitar. You're in. Cool. <laughs> yep, even easier than that. And with no fees or minimums on checking and savings accounts, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank for details. Capital One and a member FDIC. Did you know Nissan EVs have traveled 8 billion miles? Just a quick trip to Pluto and back. And what did we learn along the way? Well, that an EV can take on the world, like the Nissan LEAF. It can move racing forward and take your breath away, like the all-new Nissan Aria. We learned to make EVs that electrify. 8 billion miles driven by LEAF owners globally since 2010. Aria not yet available for purchase. Expected availability late fall. Subject to change. Welcome to Let It Roll, the podcast about how and why popular music happens, hosted by Nate Wilcox. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and Facebook, and check out our website at letitrollpodcast.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Let It Rollcast. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to all the other great Pantheon podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. This week, Ted Joya returns to discuss his classic reference book, The Jazz Standards, A Guide to the Repertoire. Ted explains what makes a song a standard, the Venn diagram between the jazz standards and the Great American Songbook, why songs from the 60s and beyond have so rarely become part of that repertoire, and more. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. My name is Nate Wilcox, and once again I'm joined by Ted Joya, author of The Jazz Standards, A Guide to the Repertoire. Ted, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. And before I, I let you talk, I want to give our listeners a little bit of context as to why this book is so relevant, because our, our show is basically a history of popular music. Jazz has tended to, to evolve into more of an art song, so I don't know that a lot of our listeners are jazz fans. So I want to explain the context, which is for the first half of the, the 20th century, most popular music was performed by dance bands who performed basically a common repertoire. Uh, everybody from Guy Lombardo to Count Basie would do the popular songs of the day. And that evolved after bebop into 
a tradition of jazz musicians from Charlie Parker on it reinterpreting those same songs. So there's basically a body of work called that you call the jazz standards, which is a perfectly appropriate title that overlaps significantly with what is called the great American songbook, but it's not the same thing. How is that for an introduction, Ted? That's absolutely right. You know, it's a bit of a mystery to me why jazz musicians stopped having this dialogue with popular music. Uh, but if you go back starting in the 1920s, for decades, whenever a song came out that was a huge hit, uh, jazz musicians would record it. Many jazz musicians would record it. You'd actually find within weeks of a song coming out, there might be four or five other recordings of it by the leading jazz bands. You know, that could still happen in the current day. And when you talk to jazz musicians, they'll gripe and they'll grumble and they say, well, the songs nowadays... You can't play them in a jazz fashion. But I don't think that's true. I think actually a lot of the songs out nowadays could easily be adapted uh, into a jazz format. Uh, so it's a lot of it's just attitudinal. But you're right. For most of the 20th century, there was a very close relationship between popular music and jazz. And and that split off, and we'll talk about that. But first, let's talk about the book and, and why you created the book and, and why you felt there was a need for this. And I got to say, this is a in, incredibly valuable resource and has expanded my knowledge. It's a great listening guide and has really deepened my appreciation of jazz and the uh, American songwriting tradition. Well, you know, when I was working on this book, it, it constantly amazed me that no one else had written a book on the subject because there's a great need to a guide to the jazz repertoire. And when I talk about the jazz repertoire, what do I mean? I'm saying these are the songs you need to know how to play if you're a jazz musician. If you're a jazz musician, uh, it, it's a strange world. I don't think people in other forms of music really can grasp it unless they've lived through it. You get hired for jobs. You know, I'll get a call, Ted, can you play piano at this gig? And you'll show up, there'll be no practice, there'll be no rehearsal. Uh, and there'll be songs that the band leader just expects that you know how to play them. And if you don't know these songs, uh, you're going to be unemployed. So I thought uh, we need a guide to these songs. And the, probably the starting point was years ago when I was teaching jazz piano students. They would come to me for lessons. And I would say, well, the songs you need to know. And they'll say, well, what are they? And I'll say, well, you know, no one ever actually has actually written a list. But let me try. So I remember this is years ago before I wrote the book. I would sit down and I would write a long list of all the songs they would need to know, what keys to play them in, whatever. And that would be their guide. And then eventually I thought, you know, someone should turn this into a book. Talk about the songs, the history of them, how they've been played over the years, which records they need to listen to. Uh, and, and make it interesting enough so it could be both for musicians to read and for non-musicians. And that's the story behind my book, The Jazz Standards. And and uh, concise and and to the point. And let's dive right in uh, with a book like this. I mean, you could I could literally do a decade of episodes on this book, um, but we're going to pick four songs and talk about some different interpretations of those songs. And I wanted to start with. Um, one of the sort of wellsprings from which jazz came, which is the blues and St. Louis Blues by W.C. Handy, which is frequently it's probably the first. Jazz, a blues song published in sheet music form and um, talk about that a little bit and how it feeds into the jazz tradition. Well, the song St. Louis Blues is probably the most successful popular song in the first half of the 20th century. In fact, somebody told me once that the only song more recorded during the early 20th century was Silent Night. So, I mean, that gives you an idea 
of the, the kind of popularity it had. Uh, not so well known today, but even now it's a, it's a standard. And once again, if you're pursuing a career as a jazz musician or want to understand the history of the music, you need to know this song. Historically, though, it's also very important for a crucial reason is that it brought the blues into American popular music. Now, nowadays, we're very familiar with the blues, even if you're not a blues fan, if you're just a rock fan. You'll know the blues because blues chord progressions are involved in rock songs. And the way the singers bend their notes on the guitar or when they're singing, that came from the blues. You can't even watch a TV singing competition without hearing people do these, these bent notes. That's almost the, the high point of the performance. They work after this and they'll hit a note and then it will, will move in and out of pitch in a very pleasing way. Well, blues introduced this to the world. And the song St. Louis Blues introduced it to the mainstream public because W.C. Handy, the composer of St. Louis Blues, had heard blues at a time when almost no one was hearing it. He had to go down to Mississippi. He was sitting in a train station in Mississippi around the year 1903. And while he was waiting for a train, there was some guy sitting near him playing guitar and singing. And the first thing you need to know is this guy was, was sort of a, a hobo, a beggar. He had raggedy clothes, uh, a young black man, and he's playing the guitar with a knife. Now why, now, why would you play the guitar with a knife? When you play the guitar with a hard object like a knife or a bottle top uh, or a steak bone or whatever, you can bend the notes. You can't do it with your bare fingers. You need to have something, something stronger to slide across uh, those fret lines. And so there was this guy singing the blues at this train station in 1903, bending notes and, and playing the guitar in a very haunting manner. And this made a big impression on W.C. Handy. And then about a decade later, he put it into a song called St. Louis Blues, which was a huge hit and turned into one of the most popular songs of all time. And the first version we're going to hear is by Bessie Smith being backed by Louis Armstrong. And this is something that to modern uh, fans is like two different genres, but at the time, Bessie Smith, backed by Louis Armstrong, was just blues. That was just pop music. It wasn't there wasn't a big blues or pop versus jazz split. In fact, jazz was a pretty nebulous concept that that had just been introduced to the broader public in 1917. So, talk a little bit about Bessie and and Louis and how they interpreted this song and its significance. Well, the chronology is interesting here. The blues is older than jazz. We, you know, and you can't measure these things precisely. If you ask me what year was blues invented in, it, I mean, that's, it, it's, it's a very difficult question to answer because blues was probably happening way back in the 19th century. But it's a very old traditional sound. And actually, to, to get a sense of how traditional it is, you have to go to the most isolated communities in the, uh, the rural districts of the southern United States to have heard it. This is, it almost seems like it's a carryover from Africa. Now, jazz, in contrast, is an urban music. He grew up in the big cities, New Orleans, Chicago, New York. Uh, but at a very early stage, jazz musicians started incorporating blues sounds into their playing. And for a long period, you'd actually have blues musicians performing with jazz musicians. Once again, this doesn't happen in the current day. If I took the, the top 10 blues albums of the current year you know, and compared them with the top 10 jazz albums there's no overlap in musicians it's like these are isolated strains of back in the 1920s the blues musicians would play and jazz musicians would be there and on this 
situation, you have the best of the best. Bessie Smith, the greatest blues singer of the 1920s, and Louis Armstrong, the greatest jazz musician of the 1920s, and they both put their stamp on singly blues. And and we're going to hear that, but we're also going to hear a little bit of Django Reinhardt's version from about 15 years later, from the late 30s. Talk a little bit about that and how Django, where Django fits in. And I, I picked him as sort of an example of an improviser playing with the song in a way that should be easier for listeners. You know, the Bessie Smith version is a pretty straightforward sung version of the song, although you can hear Louis riffing on it in the background. And Django takes it to new places. Django Reinhardt's a fascinating figure. Uh, it's, it's not true to say that he was the first major jazz musician in Europe, but you could say he was the first jazz musician in Europe with his own distinct style. Uh, so much so that it wasn't so much him imitating what was happening in America, but American musicians would imitate what Django was doing over in Europe. And so Django, uh, especially in the 1930s, had a very influential jazz band in Paris, and he would play... Uh, arrangements of jazz songs featuring his guitar work, but also a very string-oriented approach. You had violin in the group. You had you had a string bass. Uh, it had a, a a very different flavor, less percussive, but very melodic. And it also drew on Django's ethnic origins as a gypsy. People even call this gypsy jazz or jazz manouche. So this is a a very different approach on St. Louis blues. And what it shows you is the universality of this jazz language. Uh, you know, because jazz is usually music without words, uh, you know, without lyrics, it can move all over the world. It can show up in Japan, China, India, Brazil, uh, France, Italy. And so this is a great example of an innovation that started in, in uh, Mississippi Delta and W.C. Handy conquering the world. And so let's hear it. This is first we'll hear a snippet of Bessie Smith with Louis Armstrong doing St. Louis Blues, and then we'll hear Django Reinhardt's interpretation. That was Django Reinhardt and Bessie Smith taking stabs at St. Louis Blues. And I'm trying to give the listener some idea of a fundamental aspect of jazz, which is interpreting compositions with through improvisation. It basically starts with Louis Armstrong on, on Potato Head Blues, although he's he's riffing all the way through St. Louis Blues as well. I mean, and Louis Armstrong it wasn't just Bessie Smith. He's, he even did sessions with Jimmy Rogers, the founder of country music. So very much interwoven at this point in time with pop music jazz was. Uh, yeah, there's a whole different story of the relationship between country music and the blues. And most people would tell you that these two styles have nothing in common. 
know, country music is the quintessential white person's music. Blues is the quintessential black person's music. But what you see is they both came out of the same parts of the country. Uh, they both originated in the same communities. Uh, there was an amazing give and take that you had uh, uh, with people in, uh, in both those idioms. So um, it's, uh, it, it's something that, that is particularly demonstrated on some of the recordings when you hear, you know, Louis Armstrong playing with Jimmy Rogers. But once again, it's a testimony of the, the universality of jazz. Jazz is not so much a style of music, but it's a way of playing all styles of music. So you can have that give and take between jazz and country or jazz and blues. And another force that jazz musicians had to contend with in the 20s, 30s, and on was the Broadway songbook, what's come to be known as the Great American Songbook, which generally refers to about 25-year year period when songwriters like Jerome Kern, Richard Rogers, George Gershwin, Cole Porter, et al. wrote songs primarily for Broadway plays and movies, but also sometimes they just were released as pop songs and recorded on the radio. But jazz bands had to play the popular songs of the day, and... These two forces collide where you have, you know, and somebody like Gershwin was openly influenced by jazz. I mean, his his big con- concert piece, Rhapsody in Blue, was introduced by Paul Whiteman, who was called the king of jazz, although he probably isn't really jazz as we know it, in that it wasn't an improvised group. But there were certain elements of blue notes and the chord patterns that Gershwin was fascinated with. But essentially these, and Jerome Kern, on the other hand, was anti-jazz was was a, a much more classically influenced composer but both of these guys are writing pop songs that are harmonically complicated so they've got fascinating chord structures talk a little bit about that about how songs like i've got rhythm and uh all the things you are collided with the jazz world and, and what it produced well almost from the start songwriters tried to learn from jazz the first jazz recordings appear in 1917. And by the time you get to 1920 uh, and into the 1920s, jazz is everywhere in America. So all of a sudden, if you're a professional songwriter, you're paying attention to this. And there was this idea that if we could bring jazz into our songs, if we could write songs that were jazzy, uh, we would really be at the cutting edge. But this wasn't easy. You know, jazz is a very loose uh, rambunctious, unconstrained music. So how can you write a song that sounds jazzy? And so you have a, a, a number of people making early efforts at this. You have Irving Berlin doing a song called Alexander's Ragtime Band, which curiously enough, he may have plagiarized from Scott Joplin. That's a, that's a whole unwritten story <laughs> in, in American music. Uh, Joplin may have, may have felt that, that that song was stolen from him. You have Gershwin, though. You have George Gershwin. 1920 has his first hit record, Swanee. And Gershwin is definitely trying to bring jazz ingredients into his music. So the way you hear it is the syncopation, where often the accents aren't falling on the beat anymore. They're falling between the beat. This rhythmic propulsion, uh, use of blues notes, sort of this flatted third sound. You have a bunch of, of distinctive elements going into music then. And, and almost every songwriter had to play this game. And you mentioned Jerome Kern. He's one of the great songwriters of the first half of the 20th century. And he was notoriously hostile to jazz. He didn't like to hear jazz musicians play his songs. And he's often been considered as a, as a great enemy of jazz. 
But I will point out his, his songs are perfectly suitable for jazz. And they're played today primarily by jazz musicians. And I don't know of a single instance in which the estate of Jerome Kern has returned the royalty checks when they arrive in the mail. Uh, <laughs> so when these jazz musicians are the ones that are keeping Jerome Kern's songs alive in the current day. And from the grave, he ought to be grateful. I don't, I don't know if he is or he isn't. But the fact is, these are great jazz songs, whether he wanted them to be or not. And what was it about a song like I Got Rhythm that became such a foundational building block, not just of swing jazz in the 30s, but of modern jazz in the 40s, 50s, and 60s? Well, George Gershwin wrote a lot of songs, and probably I could say that 10 or 20 of them are, are so good that jazz musicians still play them frequently in the current day. But the one that, that had the greatest influence is I Got Rhythm, which curiously enough is one of the simplest songs that Gershwin wrote. I mean, the melody could hardly be simpler. I've got rhythm, I've got music. I mean, it's, it's a very uh, um, simple song. I mean, the challenge was to write lyrics with uh, you know, just four-syllable lines. And the chord changes aren't very notable either. Uh, the whole bridge just goes through the circle of fifths. From a harmonic standpoint, there's not much to study here. So the question that's raised is, why did Gershwin's simplest song become his um, most widely played one? And I think it's because I Got Rhythm could serve as a, as a simple framework where you could build almost anything you wanted on top of it. And that's how I Got Rhythm had its greatest success in jazz. Not because people played I Got Rhythm, but they would write a song based on it. They would use the underlying chord progression and they would write their own melody to it. So Duke Ellington did this with a song called Cottontail, you know, Dizzy Gillespie and Charlie Parker would play their version of I Got Rhythm called Anthropology. Sonny Rollins would write his own melody, Oleo to it. Uh, Thelonious Monk would write a song called Rhythmining, which was his own version of I Got Rhythm. So what happened was I Got Rhythm became uh, incorporated through the back door into almost anything that happened in jazz over an almost 100-year period. Even today, jazz musicians play it so often, they sometimes just call it rhythm changes. I don't even tell the musicians in my band we're playing I Got Rhythm. I just we're going to do rhythm changes now, and they know exactly what I mean. Cool, and let's hear it. Uh, first, we'll hear Louis Armstrong doing a pretty straightforward version of I Got Rhythm, and then we'll hear a group called the Esquire All-Stars, which was an all-star group with Benny Goodman and Louis Armstrong and Benny, uh, Billy Holiday, among others, playing together at a big concert at the Met in 1944. So this is I Got Rhythm. I Got Rhythm
And that was two stabs at I Got Rhythm. And I, I picked, uh, I didn't, I wanted to get into modern jazz a little later, but modern jazz musicians, and by modern basically meaning anybody after bebop, uh, have definitely, like you said, torn into that song heavily. I also want to talk a little bit about All the Things You Are, which you, you pick out as possibly your favorite uh, jazz standard. Well, uh, All the Things You Are goes back to Jerome Kern, who, as we mentioned, didn't like jazz musicians. Uh, playing his songs, but in fact, All the Things You Are is one of the most widely played jazz songs. Uh, unlike I Got Rhythm, All the Things You Are is much more complex. This song is constantly moving through different harmonic centers, uh, and it's not a song for a beginning jazz musician. This is a song that you need to have a little more experience under your belt. Uh, but once you've gotten to uh, a, a certain point, the, the song has almost unlimited possibilities. And I know jazz musicians who've told me, hey, I've been playing this song my whole lifetime. You know, in fact, I, I talked to Bud Shank, the jazz saxophonist, shortly before he died. He was in his 80s, and he'd been a professional jazz musician since probably his teens. And he said, Ted, I still don't feel I've exhausted all the possibilities of all the things you are. And I can understand that. There's a whole group of musicians who study under the great jazz master Lenny Tristano, uh, people like Warren Marsh, Lee Konitz, they would play this song all the time. Uh, the, the, these Tristanoites, as I call them, have probably played uh, all the things you are tens of thousands of times in their lifetime, and they, they, they can't exhaust the possibilities. Because once again, it's a very open framework that allows you to do a lot, and even after you've played it again and again, you still think you can come up with something new on it. And and that's one thing that I learned from your book or that your book clarified for me, because coming to this music as, you know, somebody coming from a rock background growing up in the 80s, you know, the Great American Songbook was new to me. Jazz was new to me. And the interrelationship, my initial assumption, because in the rock world, if you hear somebody covering a song, at least post Beatles and Dylan, that that that's a big deal. It, it, most rock musicians are supposed to be writing their own songs, and so if you cover somebody else, it's a big endorsement of someone else and their song. But jazz musicians are not necessarily endorsing the original composition when they cover it. They're more like they're playing with it or they're tearing it apart and reinterpreting it. And uh, you know, we'll get to this when we talk about John Coltrane and and my favorite things at the end. But that to me was was pretty interesting, and this this hostility between Jerome Kern, uh, and I guess it was a one way hostility. Jazz musicians always liked playing his songs, and clearly still do. But he didn't like his compositions being messed with, and that gets to the fundamental thing of what is jazz, which is improv improvised music with a blues basis and swing. Is that a fair definition? Or well, you know, absolutely. You know, my background is a little different than most. I discovered jazz fairly early on, probably around the time I was 17 years old, I stumbled into a jazz club and it changed my life. But still, I had a few years before that where I was an avid rock fan and popular music fan. And I lived through myself the different attitude you have to have as a listener and as a performer for this music. And, and the issue you focused on is probably the critical one. If you go hear a rock band or a pop band Generally, the goal of most people in the audience is they want to hear the song live played exactly the way it was on the record. You know, the closer it is to the recorded version, the happier they are. And if it starts deviating too much 
from the familiar song that they love, it's a favorite tune, maybe it's their, when they won their first date, they heard this song. If you start deviating too much from the way it is on the hit record, the fans are unhappy. Well, jazz is the exact opposite. Jazz musicians want it to be different every time they play it. And that's the challenge to them. Let me give you an example. Probably this is a great example. Uh, Dave Brubeck, famous jazz musician, had a super hit song that he recorded back in 1959 called Take Five. Uh, it, it was a, probably the, the biggest selling jazz single of, of the last 60 years. And it was on jukeboxes, it was on the radio everywhere. And everybody knew this song, Take Five. And so now Dave Brubeck, every concert he gives, he's expected to play this song. And, and Dave was a genial man. I knew him pretty well. Uh, and, and he wanted fans to be happy. So he would play Take Five every night. But they were often shocked because one of Dave's fundamental principles was to improvise freshly every time he sat down at the piano. To sit down with no preconceived notions, tap into the inspiration of the moment, and, and, and let it fly. So you would hear Take Five, it, would, it never sounded like the recording. I mean, never, it never sounded like the recording. It always sounded different. And even towards the end of his life, when he's in his 80s, he's still doing extraordinary things. And I remember I, I had a chance to meet with some of the musicians who played with him after he passed away. And I said, now you played with Dave every night. Is it safe to say that he was always changing these songs around? And they would say he never played it the same way twice. Absolutely never. So this is a fundamental difference between the jazz ethos and the rock ethos. Uh, rock is, hey, let's make it sound like a hit record. Jazz is, let's forget everything we've done before and make it fresh tonight. And and that's a key distinction. And, and I'm fascinated with this period in the 1930s when we sort of um, had our cake and ate it too, when artists like Louis Armstrong and Duke Ellington and Count Basie were not just at the forefront of jazz innovation, but they were tops of the hit parade as well. And Benny Goodman and others, of course, uh, even more popular and yet still improvising and, and, and doing important work. Talk a little bit about Duke Ellington and, and his role as a, his contribution as a composer to the jazz standards, because when you look, when you dig into it, you know, I was trying to pick what would be the right Duke Ellington song to play. And, so many of these songs are actually written by Billy Strayhorn or Johnny Hodges or somebody else. Talk about Duke Ellington and the way he worked as a composer with his band and his partners. Well, this really encapsulates how different jazz was back then. And really something happened that was, was strange. I don't know if we'll ever see it again in popular music, where the dividing line between popular music and highbrow music and art music was so fluid. Uh, I mean, you mentioned Benny Goodman. Now, Benny Goodman in the late 1930s was the hottest musician in commercial music. What, the, what Elvis Presley was in the 1950s, what the Beatles were in the 1960s, well, Benny Goodman was that in the late 1930s. And everybody knew his music and danced to it. It was mass market music. Yet Benny Goodman would also play with symphony orchestras. He'd play the Mozart clarinet concerto. He commissioned Aaron Copeland to write a clarinet concerto. He commissioned Bella Bartok to write a clarinet piece for him. And, and so you look at this and it just, it's ridiculous. You know, Mel Powell, who was the piano player in the Benny Goodman band, quit and began teaching composition at Yale and later won a Pulitzer Prize for his classical music. So this, could you imagine in the current day 
any of our top pop stars saying, well, I'm going to play a Mozart concerto with the New York Philharmonic next week. It's, it's inconceivable. And so also he had was- Charlie Christian, who's this, you know, bebop visionary from Oklahoma, this black hick kid from the sticks and, and John Hammond and Benny Goodman bring them in, bring him into the Benny Goodman orchestra. So he's simultaneously doing classical music, pop music, but also on the cutting edge of jazz innovation and in a very earthy way with the, the most you know funky down home African-American innovators going. Yeah. It's, it's an amazing period in American music. I don't think we'll ever see this again. And I still, it, this is the one question you could ask me I'd have no answer for, which is how did it happen? How did it happen? How can't you have this solidity? And you mentioned Duke Ellington, and this is, a, this is a great example of it. It's a grand mystery. Between 1938 and 1942, Duke Ellington was creating some of the most innovative music in American history. And you can analyze this music uh, if you're a composer and, and study all the nuances of it, it's so rich, it's so complex, uh, it, it has such high artistic aspirations. But during the same period, Duke Ellington was releasing hit records all the time. You know, he would release songs and they'd climb to the top of the charts and it would be great dance music. And no one at that juncture seemed to see a conflict uh, between these two roles he had in American life. And, um, from a point of view of a fan, it's a great thing because you can listen to Duke Ellington's music on whatever level you want. You could just listen to it for the, for the catchy melodies and the, the hit songs, or you can listen to it as a dancer, or if you want, you can get into enormous detail of how he's structuring his compositions and in the, the way he's, he's, he's creating sounds, textures out of his instrumentalists. Uh, it's all there. It's all and there. One, the- one artist. And one of the most fun things about your book to me was reading about a song like Night Train, which when I first was looking through the table of contents, you know, I'm seeing all the standards and then I see Night Train and I'm like, wait a minute, that to me, that's a James Brown song. And then I go and read the entry and it turns out that the roots of Night Train go back to Duke Ellington. Well, that's a perfect example. You know, Jimmy Forrest wrote the song Night Train, which became uh, a big rhythm and blues hit. And it's um, with great crossover success. And it crossed over into, into places you wouldn't even expect. You know, I'm, it's sort of a bump and grind tune. I'm told that back in those days when there were jazz bands at strip clubs, and yes, there was a day when there were jazz bands at strip clubs, and it's hard, hard there is to believe. This would be a song they would play uh, during the striptease. So, I mean, this tells you uh, that when you get to Night Train, we're not talking about Carnegie Hall here. You know, we're not talking about super highbrow evenings at the Philharmonic. But this song actually originated in the Ellington band. Jimmy Forrest, who wrote it, had played in the band back around 1940. And there was a a part of a Duke Ellington song he thought he could make into something a little more commercial. And just by sort of changing the rhythmic flow of it, a little more accent on the back, and in in a certain kind of rhythmic feel, he can turn it into one of the biggest R&B hits of the day. So this is, is testifies to exactly what I said, is that this was a golden era in American music in which jazz musicians operated in a world in which there were no barriers or boundaries. They could climb up the charts, uh, or they could write something that was super sophisticated for the cognoscente. So whatever you wanted, 
It could come out of the jazz world then, even more than today. We tend to think we live in a world now in which there are no boundaries. But even today, jazz musicians are perceived as a certain type of, of, of artist and try to convince a commercial radio programmer to put a jazz song on, it won't happen. So we, we, we've lost that. And in many ways, it's a shame that we have. And and uh, I'm going to introduce the next song, and, and we'll, it's a segue, but it's a similar thing to Night Train. And that this, we're going to hear Charlie Parker's song, Now's the Time. And then we're going to hear a song, The Hucklebuck, by Paul Williams that became an enormous rhythm and blues hit. And after the, the break, I want to talk a little bit with you about Charlie Parker and his role in the split of jazz away from popular music. So here's Charlie Parker with Now's the Time, followed by Paul Williams and The Hucklebuck. And that was Charlie Parker, the avatar of Bop, uh, with his song Now's the Time, which became the basis for Paul Williams' The Hucklebuck, which is a huge hit song. And when you read read through this, you, uh, this was something that was even mentioned on The Honeymooners. I mean, Jackie Gleason uh, and Ralph Gramden are doing The Hucklebuck on the show. Talk a little bit about Charlie Parker and how, you know, like I was reading Stanley Crouch's uh, first part of his bio of Charlie Parker, the Kansas City Lightning, and I was really struck by... Charlie Parker in the 30s was in that same milieu as Duke Ellington. He's playing at the Savoy with Chick Webb and Ella Fitzgerald, uh, you know, and and people uh, with Jay McShann, and then against people like Lucky Millinder who go on to become R&B performers. What happened in the 40s that split jazz away from rhythm and blues and black popular music? Well, Charlie Parker's a fascinating figure. I don't know how well-known he is in popular culture, but in the jazz world, Charlie Parker is considered one of the, the great legends. And you might even say he's the top three in the history of jazz with Louis Armstrong, Duke Ellington, Charlie Parker. And, and you tell people that they're amazed. So wasn't Miles Davis from Charlie Parker? And then you have to say, well, Miles Davis learned from Charlie Parker. Charlie Parker hired Miles Davis, groomed him, discovered him, mentored him. Uh, I mean, Charlie Parker is the root of almost everything that's happened in jazz since the 1940s, and, and he's considered the quintessential modernist in jazz, the quintessential experimenter, and he's often perceived as the person who destroyed the connection between jazz and popular music. In a very simplified history, people will tell you, well, with Charlie Parker and the bebop modern jazz style he promoted, jazz stopped being popular music, and jazz just became a fringe music after that. But the reality, as is often the case, is much more nuanced than that, because Charlie Parker himself grew up in the midst of a very booming popular music environment in Kansas City. 
And he grew up in, a, in an environment in which the blues and dance music were everywhere. And even after he became famous as an experimenter, uh, you have this blues element that recurs again and again in his music. Now, the classic example is a, a song called Now's the Time, uh, a simple riff-based blues he recorded. And people would consider this modern jazz, but in fact, it was turned into a popular hit. And as you mentioned, he showed up on the show The Honeymooners. It's sort of a comedy routine that the, the crazy music young folks are listening to nowadays. So it shows you that jazz has never really cut its ties completely with popular music. In fact, we're living through a great period right now in reinvigorating the ties with popular music. So you have saxophonist Kamasi Washington, uh, you have Esperanza Spalding, Robert Glasper. We have a bunch of jazz musicians now that are reinvigorating these ties between jazz and commercial music, but it was never lost. And even Charlie Parker, who's often blamed for separating jazz from popular music, was able to invigorate it with a song like The Hucklebuck. But he's also doing things, another pair of songs in the book uh, that I think are great examples for what Charlie Parker did in jazz, and Dizzy Gillespie as well, his partner in crime, is the song Indiana, which is uh, an old-school jazz standard. The original Dixieland uh, jazz band recorded that in 1917, and then it's it's a standard through the 20s and 30s in jazz. But then Charlie takes the chords and rewrites it as Donna Lee. Talk about that transformation. Well, this is the exact opposite. Well, I told you Charlie Parker could write a very rootsy, down-home blues that was ready for the radio. Uh, but he also could write things of extraordinary complexity. And, and Donna Lee is a great example of this. I think it's actually his most complex melody line. Uh, but the song it's based on is very simple. It's, it's an old song called Indiana. It's very well known, particularly back in the day, easy to sing, easy to play. And so all Charlie Parker did was rewrite the melody. But by the time he rewrote it, uh, it, 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 it has all sorts of, of, of complexities. If I were teaching a class of musicians, I could spend a week just analyzing the melody of Donnelly. And I should make one note before we, we, we pass on. It's possible Miles Davis wrote this song. Uh, it sounds like a Charlie Parker song, and it's very aligned with Charlie Parker's style. But Miles was in the band at the time, and Miles has said that he's the one who wrote it. If, in fact, that is the case, it was clearly... It clearly shows you how closely Miles studied Charlie Parker's music, because this song doesn't sound like anything else Miles ever wrote, and it's very uh, masterful in its manipulation of the vocabulary that Charlie Parker created for bebop. Absolutely. And out of the explosion that was bebop come composers like Thelonious Monk and Charles Mingus. And one thing that I found interesting reading through, you know, going to, I think a great way to use your book is to go to the index and look up an artist you're interested in or a songwriter you're interested in and just uh, jump around to the, the various songs that they picked. And one thing that I noticed that when I was trying to pick a sort of representative Monk or Mingus songs, with Monk, I picked Round Midnight, which that becomes the source, as we talked about on, on our last episode, Birth of the Cool. That was the song Miles Davis chose to interpret at Newport for his breakthrough into uh, not quite pop success, but cultural impact and, and became much more popular. And and then Mingus' song, Goodbye Pork Pie Hat, which was an ode to Lester Young that we discussed, you know, Lester Young is the, the avatar of the cool. 
But the thing that I thought was interesting, both of these songs, as much as these guys are known as these modern jazz innovators and these, you know, theoretical uh, geniuses who, who exploded the pop song format and, and rebuilt it in a new modern format, both of these songs are actually based on the blues. Well, uh, Goodbye Pork Pie Hat is, is, is a 12-bar song. And the blues is 12 bars long as well. And it's clear that Mingus has the blues in mind when he's composing this song. But if you actually study the harmonies here, it's quite different from a typical blues progression. And, and this, I think, it testifies to Mingus's brilliance and to something you see with the great jazz artists that even when they play a blues, they're not just playing a blues, they're putting their own personal stamp on it. Uh, Monk was able to do this as well. Uh, Charlie Parker was able to do this as well. And, and that's testimony to, to, their, to their greatness because the blues, to be honest, the blues in the current day has become very cliched in the way most people play it. Uh, there are a lot of blues recordings, and I listen to new music all the time, so I'm listening to all the new blues recordings. And the vast majority of them take a very limited vocabulary to just play these blues looks over and over again. And so how refreshing it is, how extraordinary it is to hear a song like Goodbye Pork by Hat, which is essentially a blues song, but doesn't sound like any other blues song out there. And there are only a few people in the whole history of jazz that have been able to do that, people like Monk, Ellington, Mingus. And we ought to be grateful because they remind us of the most essential aspect of jazz and always should be, which is make it new, keep it fresh, do it different. And and this speaks to uh, another issue which you bring up in your book, which is at some point after World War II, jazz bands stopped interacting with the hits of the day. And so you have very few songwriters from the pop world after 1950 that, that make it into your book. And some of the few... Like Burt Bacharach's Alfie makes it in there. Why do you think Burt Bacharach hasn't become a bigger part of the jazz repertoire? Well, the songs <laughs> songs are hard to play. <laughs> and, you know that even I I read this anecdote the other day. You know, Ian Iverson put up this page from Burt Bacharach's uh, memoir up on Twitter, and I was laughing at it. It talks about. Uh, Burt Bacharach is at the Apollo, Dionne Warwick, who he's written all these songs for, is singing. And afterwards, he goes backstage, and he's expecting to get all this praise from the musicians. He, want, he thinks the band is going to say, oh, those are great songs. And instead, he goes up, and the first musician he says is, you bastard, why did you put this bar 7-8 in the middle of the song? You know, this is, you know, <laughs> we're playing it 4-4, we've got to change the meters. And, and um this is back, you know, back when I studied with some of the great classical composers of the 20th century. Uh, and then he turned it to writing pop songs. And some of these songs are extraordinarily complex uh, when you analyze them. And they actually, they are, I, I mean, I, I exaggerate. They are great jazz vehicles. These, these are great jazz songs, but they're not simple and straightforward. Even a song like Alfie is kind of through composed piece, which doesn't have the easy repetitions that you see in a lot of songs. So if you're a jazz musician, there's more to dig into there, but uh, I'll be honest. Once again, if I'm showing up to play and I've got a bass player and a horn player I've never played with before, I'm not going to call Alfie just because I, <laughs> I don't think there's a chance they're going to get lost in one of these modulations. 
So I'll stick to a, a, a simpler song. But that's not, hey, that's not Bacharach's song. Bacharach has written great songs. These deserve to be played more by jazz musicians. They deserve to be heard more. Uh, there, there, there's, I don't think there's a popular songwriter today uh, getting airplay that, that has anywhere near the kind of knowledge and chops and ability and, and, and brilliance that Bacharach has. And so I know he's associated as sort of a corny pop figure from the 60s and 70s, and he shows up in these Austin Powers movies. But he's a serious cat, and he's to be taken seriously. But it with it's not just Bacharach, though. It's it's composers as varied as Brian Wilson to Stevie Wonder, you know, to Lennon and McCartney to Prince. The jazz world just hasn't confronted pop songs. Is do you think there's something broader than? I mean, it's you know not all complexity. Stevie Wonder is not as complicated as Burt Bacharach. The Beatles did some tricky things, but once you figured out their tricks, it's really not anything that hard. I agree completely. I agree completely with what you're saying. Uh, Stevie Wonder, uh, those songs are perfectly suited for jazz. Brian Wilson, I play some of his songs. I play Caroline Note. A bunch of his songs I play jazz versions of. Uh, Obviously, Leonard McCartney, uh, these are perfectly suited for jazz. And you do see some musicians playing them. And you'll uh, take Brad Meldon, he's a jazz musician, but he will play Bacharach and McCartney and Radiohead, Nick Drake. But for the most part, jazz musicians don't do this. And I think a lot of it is attitudinal. And, and this is a tragedy because this is, in many ways, if I could change one thing in jazz, this would be it. It would be to make jazz musicians more willing to play music from other people uh, than themselves and their band members. Jazz musicians feel now that they have to play originals and that somehow if, if they, they, they play someone else's music, it, it, it's some sort of cop-out, which I don't understand. And, and the one thing they will never do, and this is sad, is you'll, you could go to a, a hundred jazz performances and you'll never hear uh, a jazz musician playing another song by another jazz musician who is not in either the, the, the band leader or a member of the band on the stage that night. So I'll play my bass player. I'll play one of my bass player songs. Or there, there's a trumpeter in my band. I'll play the trumpeter song. I'll play my own songs, but I won't play my contemporary songs. I won't play the songs of, of my peers out there who are pushing the art form ahead. That's not good for the music. That's not good for the music. There should be a vibrant dialogue amongst the jazz musicians themselves. And, and this, so it's a larger issue than it's not, just that jazz musicians won't play current pop hits. Uh, they're taking a very narrow notion of, of what music they're allowed to play. And the art form is hurt because of that narrow notion. And I, I had Elijah Wald on the show a couple seasons ago to talk about his book, uh, How the Beatles Destroyed Rock and Roll, which is in a way about that very same thing. It's not just jazz musicians. It's something that happened in the 50s and 60s that put a premium on personal the connection between the composer and the performer that they we we expect that they should be the same thing and when we hear someone singing a song we expect them to to have written it and i you know elijah's argument is that something big was lost when musicians stopped confronting each other's work from genre to genre and i i tend to agree and i think you're seeing the same thing but let's let's hear one uh, great jazz musician who did confront a more recent popular song and and this is john coltrane doing my favorite things i want to add the caveat that this is a rogers and hammerstein composition and and rogers particularly rogers and hart you know as a cornerstone of the great american songbook so you would think oh well 
there's nothing, you know, this isn't a new era song, but it actually is. It, it's, it's, a, it's a show from the late 50s that was massively popular through the 60s. And if it hadn't been for John Coltrane, my favorite things would never have become a jazz standard. So let's, let's hear uh, Julie Andrews doing it from the movie, and then we'll hear John Coltrane exploding it into a million beautiful pieces. So this is my favorite things. These are a few of my favorite things. <laughs> Cream-colored ponies and crisp apple strudels, doorbells and sleigh bells and schnitzel with noodles, wild geese that fly with the moon on their wings. These are a few of my favorite things. <laughs> Girls in white dresses with blue satin sashes, snowflakes that stay on my nose and eyelashes, silver white winters that melt into springs. These are... And that was John Coltrane doing uh, Rodgers and Hammerstein's My Favorite Things. Talk a little bit about this song and, and, and how it functioned to bring John Coltrane to a bigger audience and, and how he was confronting the material. Well, a little earlier I said that jazz musicians don't play current-day pop songs, although I think they should. And, and they often say, well, these songs are too simple and they're not appropriate for jazz. But that's not true. A, 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 a really outstanding jazz musician should be able to play any song in a jazz style. And if it's simple, all the better. The, the simpler it is, the more f- flexibility and freedom you have to impose whatever structures you want on top of it. And this recording of John Coltrane playing My Favorite Things is a great example of this. Uh, because at the time he recorded this song, everybody knew the song My Favorite Things. It had been in a Broadway musical that had been turned into a movie and the movie was the biggest box office hit of the era. So everybody in America knew this song. And it's the sound of music, which I forgot to mention. Yeah. The sound of music. Yes. It was the sound of music. And not only did they know the song, the song was, was, was considered a kind of song for children because Julie Andrews sings it to children in this part of the movie. And so it's not, even though everybody knew this song, it wouldn't be a song people would take seriously. It's sort of a nursery rhyme song. And even the melody's got sort of this sing-song quality that you associate with children. I mean, it's, it's not would be what you would consider classic jazz material. But for Coltrane, there was no problem. And, and the fact that it wasn't super complex, all the better for him. Because at that point in his career, he's doing these long modal improvisations. He wants very simple static harmonies to uh, build his, his song around. So around the same time, he did a recording of Green Sleeves, the folk song. He did the song Chim Chim Cherie from Mary Poppins. Uh, and he could take any simple song and turn it into, into great art. That's why if Coltrane were alive today, I guarantee you he could take all the songs on the radio and, and, and turn them into great jazz vehicles because of his ability to do that. And so once again, it's the thing I, I look for in great jazz music, musicians is to break down these barriers and to show you that the jazz can have a dialogue and a back and forth with almost any other style, and both sides are invigorated by this dialogue. And and Coltrane around this time, he's just come off of 
uh, a composition giant steps, which is the exact polar opposite, where it's basically Coltrane taking the harmonic innovations of Bop to their logical limit and and taking the improvisatory abilities of him and his band as far as they could go at the time. And it's still, you know, Vox uh, has a, a great video on YouTube about the song and, and why it's one of the most feared jazz compositions. So Coltrane is just this epic figure uh, in American music and in world music that that is able to chew through multiple forms. I mean, he, he takes Bop as far as it can go. He takes Miles's modal improvisational structure as, I mean, incredibly far. I don't know about as far as it can go. And then, and then he leaps into free jazz. Uh, so he's somebody who, and, and yet at the same time, he's able to interpret what would many people consider, I mean, the ultimate piece of pop piffle in the early 60s is my favorite things from The Sound of Music. And it's just amazing what Coltrane did with it. That was that song was actually my introduction to jazz and my introduction to show tunes. I didn't have any background in Broadway musicals, so it set me off on two great uh, explorations. And and you know that to me is what this book is all about is is helping us understand the way these different streams of music come together and and tear apart. So Ted Joya, thanks so much for the book, The Jazz Standards: A Guide to the Repertoire, and thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you for having me as a guest. And look forward to having you back to talk about your upcoming book, Music, A Subversive History, which I've just started. And I got to say, uh, I'm, I'm very excited and, and looking forward to discuss that very much. Yeah, let's do that. It comes out in the fall. Excellent. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on iTunes, Spotify, and Facebook. And check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter at Let It Rollcast. Nate will be back next week with Andy Neal to discuss Rod Stewart and the Faces. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to all the other great Pantheon podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. The Jazz Standards, A Guide to the Repertoire, is published by Oxford University Press. Please support our show by ordering via the Amazon referral link on our website, letitrollpodcast.com. With one of the best savings rates in America, banking with Capital One is the easiest decision in the history of decisions. Even easier than choosing Slash to be in your band. Next up for lead guitar. You're in. Cool. <laughs> yep, even easier than that. And with no fees or minimums on checking and savings accounts, is it even a decision? That's banking reimagined. What's in your wallet? Terms apply. See CapitalOne.com slash bank for details. Capital One and a member FDIC. Did you know Nissan EVs have traveled 8 billion miles? Just a quick trip to Pluto and back. And what did we learn along the way? Well, that an EV can take on the world, like the Nissan LEAF. It can move racing forward and take your breath away, like the all-new Nissan Aria. We learned to make EVs that electrify. 
8 billion miles driven by Leaf owners globally since 2010. Aria not yet available for purchase. Expected availability late fall. Subject to change.